Lesson four of the Elements of Anatomy and Physiology. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Elements of Anatomy and Physiology by William Ruschenberger. Lesson four Functions of Nutrition, Respiration, Necessity of Contact with Air, Asphyxia composition of the atmosphere principal phenomena of respiration the lungs mechanism of respiration animal heat we have already seen that the arterial blood by its action upon the living tissues loses those qualities which make it fit for the support of animal life and after having been in this way vitiated it regains its first properties by contact with air the transformation of venous into arterial blood by the action of the air constitutes the phenomenon of respiration respiration and consequently contact with the air is indispensable to all living beings plants as well as animals feel the want of it and when deprived of it both very soon perish when from any cause whatever respiration is arrested all the animal functions are disturbed life soon ceases to be manifest the animal falls into a state of asphyxia or apparent death and in a very short time life becomes entirely extinct at first sight we might believe that animals which live in the depths of the waters as fishes are removed from the influence of the air and consequently form an exception to the law of which we have spoken but it is not so for the liquid in which they dwell absorbs and holds in solution a certain quantity of air which may be easily separated from it and which is sufficient for the support of life in them it is impossible for them to exist in water deprived of its air and they are seen to become asphyxiated and die just as the mammiferae and birds do when excluded from the action of the atmospheric air under its ordinary form in man and in other mammalia the apparatus of respiration consists first of the lungs organs which are the seat of this function second of canals by which the air from without is conveyed into the lungs third of organs which effect the entrance of the air into this apparatus and which afterwards expel it to make room for fresh supplies of this fluid the lungs figure eleven are very elastic spongy organs contained in the cavity of the chest and formed by the union of a great number of membranous vesicles resembling little cells which generally communicate with one another into these vesicles is introduced the external air when it penetrates their cavities it distends them and thus augments the entire volume of the lung which happens in inspiration on the contrary when the lungs are emptied of the air which distends them their volume diminishes as happens in expiration the lungs communicate 
with the external air by a long canal which is terminated by the mouth and nose the air to reach these organs passes through the nasal fossae or nostrils or through the mouth into the pharynx then enters into the larynx descends along the trachea or windpipe and is distributed to the pulmonary cells by other canals or tubes called bronchae the nasal fossae and the mouth terminate internally in the pharynx or gullet so that the supply of air necessary for respiration may reach this cavity by either route at the bottom of the pharynx or swallow we find an opening called the glottis which leads into the larynx and permits the air to enter therein the larynx is a short tube of considerable diameter situated at the superior and anterior part of the neck and which contributes to the production of the voice the larynx is prolonged inferiorly into a long tube called the trachea or windpipe which descends through the neck and enters into the thorax this tube is formed by a series of cartilaginous rings and is lined internally by a thin membrane which also lines the larynx and is continuous with that of the pharynx the cartilaginous rings of the trachea are very elastic and prevent this air canal from being effaced that is from having its sides pressed together and thus offer an obstacle to the passage of the air at its lower extremity the trachea is divided into two branches one going to each of the two lungs they are called bronchia soon after they enter the lungs these bronchia are subdivided and ramify into almost infinity of branches so as to furnish every pulmonary cell with a little branch which opens into it and conveys there the air necessary to respiration the instrument which causes the air to pass through these tubes and to enter the lungs or to go out from them is the thorax figure twelve the mechanism by which this phenomenon is produced is very simple and in almost every respect resembles the play of a pair of bellows except that the air escapes by the same passage that it entered the lungs which is not the case in the bellows the lungs are lodged in a great cavity called the chest or thorax the sides of which are movable so arranged as to enlarge and diminish the size of the cavity alternately the lungs follow these motions and dilate and contract in consequence now in the first case when the thorax dilates the air pressed by all the weight of the surrounding atmosphere is forced into the chest and through the mouth or nostrils and trachea and fills the pulmonary cells in the same way that water mounts in the body of a pump when the piston is raised in the second case in the act of expiration the air contained in the lungs is on the contrary compressed and partially escapes by the route which served it for entrance the cavity of the thorax figure thirteen is formed principally by the ribs which are attached posteriorly to the spine or vertebral column and in front to the bone of the sternum 
the spaces which exist between the ribs are filled up by muscles and below this species of chamber is separated from the belly by a fleshy partition called the diaphragm inspiration or the enlargement of the chest is produced in two ways first by the elevation of the ribs second by the muscular contraction of the diaphragm which in a state of repose rises into the chest in the form of an arch and which in contracting is lowered down expiration or contraction of the chest on the contrary is produced by the depression of the ribs and relaxation of the diaphragm we observe many degrees in the extent of these movements and in ordinary respiration the quantity of air received into or expelled from the lungs does not much exceed one-seventh part of what these organs are capable of containing the number of respiratory movements varies in different individuals according to the age in adult age we count about twenty inspirations a minute in infancy they are much more frequent we have seen that it is by the nose or mouth the pharynx the larynx the trachea and the bronchia that the air enters into the lungs the venous blood which is to be subjected to the salutary influence of this air, arrives at the same time in little vessels, which ramify in every direction over the sides of the cells. Consequently, it is through the very sides of these capillary vessels that the air acts upon this fluid. The blood coming to the lungs is of a blackish-red color, and it is not fit to support life in the organs. But so soon as it comes into contact with the air, it changes its nature, its color becomes a bright red, regains its vivifying properties, and acquires all the characteristics of arterial blood. The atmospheric air which thus enters into the lungs, and there produces so remarkable a phenomenon, is chiefly composed of two substances which differ very much from each other namely oxygen and azote or nitrogen though the oxygen which enters into the composition of the air forms about one-fifth twenty-one parts in the hundred it is its most important part it is to the oxygen that the air owes its property of supporting life and of sustaining the burning of combustible bodies when inflamed azote or nitrogen which enters into the composition of the air in the proportion of seventy-nine parts in a hundred is unfit for respiration and incapable of supporting combustion it seems to serve only to dilute the oxygen and thus mitigate the otherwise too irritating action of this gas. By being breathed, the air changes its nature. Its oxygen disappears little by little, and is replaced by another fluid called carbonic acid gas. This carbonic acid gas is composed of oxygen combined with carbon, derived from the blood instead of being fit to support life it acts as a poison on animals that breathe it for a short time and causes death on this account 
by the respiration of animals, the air is gradually vitiated, and, if it were not renewed, would soon occasion asphyxia. Carbonic acid gas, which extinguishes bodies in combustion in the same way as azote, is formed by the combustion of charcoal, also during the fermentation of wine and of beer, which makes it sparkling and frothy. It is upon the action of this gas on the animal economy that the asphyxia produced by the vapor of charcoal depends as well as the greater number of accidents of the same sort which occur in mines, caves, wells, and vats, wherein wine or beer is fermenting. In a grotto near Naples, this gas is continuously disengaged from the earth, and give rise to phenomena which at first sight appear very singular, and excite the admiration of the traveller. When a man enters this cavern he experiences no inconvenience in his respiration, but a dog following him very soon falls down in a state of asphyxia at his feet, and would soon expire were he not speedily removed to the pure air. This arises from the fact that the carbonic acid gas, being much heavier than the air, sinks down and forms upon the bottom of the cave a bed or stratum of about two feet thick, now a dog that enters the grotto is necessarily plunged over his head into this mephitic gas, and must necessarily become asphyxiate, while a man who is very much taller only has the lower part of his body exposed to the action of the carbonic acid, and breathes freely the air which floats above. This remarkable place is known under the name of the Grotto del Cano, or Dog's Grotto. The air which escapes from the lungs is composed of the nitrogen inspired of a portion of oxygen not employed, and of carbonic acid furnished by the act of respiration. The expired air is also loaded with vapor of water, exhaled from the blood during its passage through the capillary vessels of the lungs. This vapor becomes very perceptible when the cold condenses it, at the moment of its issue from the body and constitute what physiologists call pulmonary transpiration. Since the air is quickly vitiated by respiration, and its oxygen disappears to be replaced by the carbonic acid, we readily infer that this fluid must be constantly renewed in the lungs, and in fact that this takes place in consequence of the alternate movements of inspiration and expiration, we are informed of the degree of alteration which the air has undergone in our lungs by the sensation which induces us to renew it. This sensation, scarcely appreciable in ordinary respiration, because we hasten to comply with the necessity of frequently renewing the air, becomes painful, if not promptly satisfied, and is sometimes accompanied by anxiety and even agony an instructive warning of the imperious necessity of respiration. In man there is commonly twenty inspirations per minute. In all the mammalia, in birds and in reptiles, respiration takes place in lungs and very nearly in the same manner as in man. In the greater number of aquatic animals, such as fishes, lobsters, oysters, etc., it is altogether different. 
and respiration takes place through the medium of a sort of membranous fringes called branchiae. We shall recur to this in the sequel. The air necessary to the support of life in insects penetrates into all parts of their bodies through particular canals called trachea. Finally, there are some animals which have neither lungs nor branchia nor trachea, in which respiration is accomplished by the surface of the skin. The earthworm is an example of this kind. The greater number of animals appear cold when we touch them, and indeed the temperature of their bodies is not much above that of the atmosphere, and changes with it. In man, and in other animals, that approach him in their organization, it is otherwise. They have the faculty of producing a sufficient quantity of calorie to maintain their temperatures, nearly always at the same degree, under all atmospheric changes, and keep themselves warm. We designate, under the name of cold-blooded animals, all those whose proper heat is not very perceivable, and call those warm-blooded animals which produce sufficient heat independently of the atmosphere surrounding them. The production of this heat, which is called animal heat, seems to depend upon the act of respiration. The combination of the oxygen of the air with the venous blood in the interior of the lungs, as we have already seen, causes the formation of certain quantity of carbonic acid gas, in the same manner as in the case where oxygen combines with carbon, in producing the phenomenon of combustion, and in both instances must extricate a greater or lesser quantity of heat. The faculty of thus producing heat is common to all animals, but the greater part of them develop it in so small a degree that it is not appreciable by our ordinary thermometers, while in others it is so great that we do not require physical instruments to ascertain its existence. The only warm-blooded animals are the mammalia and birds. All the rest are cold-blooded. The temperature of the body of man is about a 101 degrees of Fahrenheit. It is about the same in other mammalia, but birds produce more heat, their temperature rising to about a 108 degrees Fahrenheit. End of Lesson 4